Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello to the listeners of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. You can find him at his website, victorhanson.com. The name of the website is The Blade of Perseus. Please come join us. We are on our Saturday um, edition. And this Saturday, we're going to continue with news stories because there's been so much going on this week. On deck is the IRS whistleblower and an assassination attempt of Joe Biden. So stay with us. We'll take a break for some messages and we'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back. And we, generally speaking, like to start things off on a positive note. And Victor, I was wondering if you have something that's on the positive note today. Positive note. Uh, Yes. I've been very impressed with Kevin McCarthy. I think a lot of people belittled him and thought that he was a provincial Bakersfield product and wasn't up to the sophistication and cosmopolitanism of, say, a Paul Ryan, which was laughable, but he was. And he's, I think, got the best sort of positioning for the budget deal. He's had an enormous ability to create unity with a very small uh, majority in the House. I think he's posed uh, he was very effective in getting people elected. And I think he's uh, poised uh, to do very well in the next midterms. So that was a very good thing. And Jim Jordan, this committee, everybody laughed out about the weaponization of government, but whether it's the Biden consortium and the IRS problems or more things that have emerged uh, that they're looking into vis-a-vis the Durham report, it's really doing something both terrifying and, and beneficial. It's really telling us that the FBI, the CIA, the DOJ, the Pentagon, they're not they're all um corrupt they're weaponized they're woke and they're run by careerists who 
take the agency and value and currency of their bureaucracies, warp them, and then to enhance their own woke profile upon retirement and the revolving door. It's that simple. Whether yes, it is. It's it's a, a, yeah, Andrew McCabe lying four times and then becoming a CNN, MSNBC, whatever analyst or James Clapper, John Brennan, ditto or James Comey in and out of Lockheed from the DOJ to Lockheed to the Pentagon. I won't even get into Lloyd Austin and Raytheon. All of them. All of them. All, all of them. It's all reflecting, too, in that Harvard-Harris poll we talked about on Friday. Uh, you saw that statistic as well, that people at by 70% don't trust the FBI, I think, was the statistic. And, and Something around there. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's No, it's suicidal. And this vindictive retribution, how dare you? The, the right is calling to, to undermine the FBI. No, no, they have a lot of confidence in colonels and lieutenant colonels in the military and majors and the enlisted and the FBI loyal corps that follow the law. What they're talking about is a corrupt, corrupt, corrupt Washington revolving door careerist uh, utilitarian group of people. And they have destroyed these reputations of these institutions. And the weird thing about it is all of our listeners are diehard supporters of an investigatory FBI that looks out for our security vis-a-vis terrorism. We're supporters of the CIA. We're supporters of the Pentagon. We're supporters of blind justice in the DOJ, federal prosecutors. These people are not. Yes. Whether it's dropping the investigation of the, the corrupt Biden tax schemes that we're looking at with these whistleblowers, or whether it's uh, Lloyd Austin repeatedly when Matt Gates asked him about drag shows on bases, just simply flat out lying that the, the military doesn't do that, or Mark Milley misleading us about drone about a strike after the during the Afghanistan pullout, or the complete lack of accountability of the disaster in Afghanistan, or this horrendous accusation that the military ranks are staffed with white supremacists that have to be rooted out, and that, and which led that insane policy to an entire division short in the army, and the ridicule of families whose yeah. children have fought inordinately well beyond their demographics and died in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they get no credit for that. Instead, they get abuse from this military corrupt leadership. And I say corrupt because what do you do with a chairman of the Joint Chief who calls his Chinese counterpart to warn him about Trump? I don't know what you do with that. But if any enlisted person or lower ranking officer had done that, he would be put up on charges. And then you look at what the DOJ is doing under Merrick Garland, especially. I have no problem... You know, sentencing someone for genuine insurrection. But my God, if you're going to if you're going to imprison people for 16 years that didn't enter the Capitol on the idea that they may have supported the protest, <laughs> then what are you going to do about 120 days in 2020 with BLM and Antifa plotting their interstate strategies on social media? And, you know, torching courthouses and police precincts and historic churches and trying to storm the iconic White House ground. Just a travesty. So I am happy that there's finally somebody looking into this. And if the left is paranoid, just one last thing. If you want to know why the left is just so shrill about Trump or DeSanta, it is they understand that if they lose the Senate, 
there's going to be an historic reopening of all of these things, and they're going to get people to testify under oath. There's going to be a lot of a lot of uh, criminal exposure, believe me. Yes. Well, on that note, and you got my blood pressure going up just with all that, we've recently had the IRS whistleblower testify before Congress, Gary Shapley, and he said this to say, quote, when I took control of the Hunter investigation, I immediately saw the deviations from the normal process. It was way outside the norm of what I've experienced in the past, and he's been in the IRS for 14 years. He's basically said to the Congress, they slow walked the investigate or they are slow walking it. And now I believe his whole division has been fired from this particular case. That tells you one thing that tells you one thing. Collate that with Christopher Ray's recent refusal. He he disobeyed a federal congressional subpoena to come to court and produce a document about uh information concerning the Biden family's quid pro quo grifting, and he refused to do it. What does that all mean? These whistleblowers and the refusal of the IRS to first firing them, getting them off the case, and the refusal to explain it, and then Merrick Garland's sphinx-like silence, and then Christopher Ray's, it means there's something really there. Yes. I I think they understand that if they produce documents that have been subpoenaed, or they allow these whistleblowers to testi- testify fully and they put a special, the Biden family would be indicted. Mm-hmm. And so I've never seen such paranoia about it. But then yes. I've, never, I've never seen a family, on the other hand, that uh, lived in such a fashion that was not commiserate with their reported income. So yeah. how Joe Biden got those beautiful homes and live the way he did, or how Hunter blew through coke and women and expensive rentals based on what he reported as income, the IRS. I mean, they're they're, they're going on Christmas Eve to Matt Tybee's house, and they're going after a journalist for something supposedly he did in 2018 when they claimed they sent him a letter and he never got it. And they claim, and yet when asked to produce a letter, they can't. And then when asked why they went to his house, uh, was there an infraction? Was there a deliberate overreporting? No, he, he's owed a re- he's owed a substantial refund. So <laughs> when when just ask everybody, if anybody's listening, have any of you had IRS agents come to your home on a Saturday on Christmas Eve to inform you that there's irregularities in a tax form five years earlier with no culpability on your part, but they wanted to let you know that they're visiting your house, but they don't tell you that you're owed money from the IRS. And why is that coincides exactly with his testimony about the FBI's contractual agreements with Twitter people and the DOJ, et cetera, CIA, to, uh, what, I guess, smother... Uh, information they felt that was not useful for the Biden agenda and re-election, and then they labeled it misinformation, disinformation, and then Twitter and other social media silenced the news, and then guess what? FBI legal counsel James Baker probably makes 250000 He gets a 30, 30 multi- times raise and suddenly goes to work for Twitter for $8 million a year. Yeah. You, 
So that's that's the level of corruption that we're dealing with. You know, um, on a side note, there I, I noticed with Matt Taibbi and a person like Glenn, Glenn Grinwald, they're left-leaning people who have um, really started, you know, talking about things that are of interest to the Republicans. And it seems like there's a growing group of those people, much like the neocons grew. I mean, not the neocons, sorry, the anti-Trump right grew um, before the recent election. Do you, do you see, is that a pattern? Do you see? Well, a little even, bit, except e- the never Elon Musk, right? Yeah, even yeah. Elon Musk. But you got to remember one thing. All of these people, and I, I'm, I applaud what they're doing, but we've been, we're into five years of this, six years, seven years of misinformation, disinformation, two bogus impeachments, the bogus Russian collusion hoax, the bogus laptop disinformation hoax, the DNC, Perkins Coe, Fusion GPS, uh, Christopher Steele, Dashinko, Dolan, the whole Hillary Dash FBI funded effort to warp an election. So we're all into that. We're into the 2016 celebrities, actors getting on television and urging the electors to refuse their constitutional mandates and just simply vote for Clinton. Talk about election denialism. Okay. And none of these people said anything. So they were perfectly happy to play Dr. Frankenstein and shock this monster. And it came to life called Woke. And it went on a rampage. And as long as it, the Frankenstein woke monster was killing all the other, the good people, they didn't say anything. And then guess what? They started going after them. And Bill Maher started to see that when he finally got a little outraged about the racism of the left, they started turning on him. And when Elon Musk started to just a little bit complain about California and what they were doing to his company, Twitter, and he started, they turned on him. And then Matt Taibbi, when he started, you know, saying just a minute, they turned on him. And after that, they understood that when you create a monster, it can kill the creators. And that's what's happened. Yeah. That you can't control it. Woke is... It goes after any potential, it's like the Salem witch trial, any potential doubters of the woke creed become targets, whether you're left or right. So Barry Weiss at the New York Times, they go after her because she wants to have a balanced view of Israel. Bam. Len Greenwald, he created The Intercept. I mean, he was a fierce critic of me. I have no animus toward him. I, I admire his principled stand even though I disagreed with on certain times, but boy, when they went after him, he's, he, he, he understood what, what was created by the left. And we could go on and on and on about these people, but they, it's a little different. Uh, the never Trump people demanded a particular profile in their candidate. And when Donald Trump didn't meet it, they wanted to destroy him, even though, he had voiced positions that were 90% compatible with their lifetime conservative advocacy. Maybe a little bit different on trade or the border. But other than that, they hated him because he didn't fit their profile of John McCain, Mitt Romney, George W. Bush, Jeb Bush, etc. 
So that was how else can you explain it? How else can you explain the bulwark or the dispatch when they to criticize Donald Trump on his platform or his agenda is impossible unless you're, you go completely left. And so if you look at the bulwark, Charles Sykes and those people, they're a fervent Biden supporter. So their critique shows you that they weren't angry about what Trump did at the time. They were angry because Trump represented a complete rejection or refutation of traditional Republican grandees such as themselves. And when they when they were completely obliterated by him or were ignored by him or neglected by him, then they made the argument that his personal decorum was such that he had nullified or tarnished or stained the conservative principles and that he would lose for that reason. When he didn't lose and he became president and he enacted the most conservative agenda since Ronald Reagan, they were in a dilemma because they had been funded by people on the left as useful idiots. And so what they had to do then was make the argument a new argument. Well, he was so uncouth and disgusting that he stained the conservative agenda. But now that he's president, he still stains it. But he's not going to be president much longer, thanks to people like us. So then what do we do? So here's what we do. We say either that Ron DeSantis or Tim Scott or would also stain the agenda, even though they don't have the same character descriptions as Donald Trump. Or, and this is what I'm getting to, we just don't like the conservative agenda. We never did. So these crazy Republicans, they, they're crazy on abortion. They had this crazy idea about the border. They had this crazy idea about crime, putting people in jail. They had this crazy idea about the military. They had this crazy idea about pumping gas and oil. This is crazy. And then they, you know, they nod, they get a little pat on the head from the people who fund them. And that's, yes. that is the never Trump people. They're not yeah. never Trump. They can't even use, I mean, what if DeSantis gets the nomination? What are they, what are they then? Never DeSantis? <laughs> yes, I suppose. Oh, we're the never dissent. We're principal people. No, you're not. You just get money from people that pay you to say certain stuff, and then you're supposed to pose as principled conservatives, and that's supposed to be more effective propaganda than if you're on the left. Yeah. They more show the divide between the center U.S. Yeah. United States or ordinary and the coastal elite. That's for sure. Victor, let's go ahead and take a break yeah. and come back and talk about the assassination of Joe Biden. Stay with us. We'll be right back. OK, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. And Joe Biden, recently there was a um, young man, Saeed Varshith Kandula, who is an ethnic Indian, and he ran a U-Haul into the White House fence. Have you heard about that? And what's the deal? Well, I mean, he had supposedly Nazi paraphernalia. He was a white supremacist. They didn't give us a description. They didn't give us his name. So they ran with the headline. White supremacist, Nazi, tries to kill noble Joe Biden. And then we find out that he hit a, you know, he hit a barrier. He had a long history of mental instability. He was very dark. He was an Indian or from the Indian subcontinent national and then guess what? They thought, hmm, we did some damage with that first 24 hours, but it's not sustainable because, of course, we lie. So if we keep saying that he's a white supremacist, somebody's going to look at his name or his country of origin or his mental instability or the skin color that he has. And they're going to say, no, he's not. And so they dropped it. It just dropped. Yeah. If, you, if you go today and you say and you Google white supremacist, you'll just see the original stories. There's no mm-hmm. follow up. Yeah. So it's in a pattern, right? Remember the illegal uh, second generation Mexican-American who went and shot everybody in Texas and his parents don't speak English. And oh, he was, yes. They yes. were from an indigenous, you know, from Mexico. And we were told because he went on the Internet and did. He was a security guard that people basically said it was crazy. And he shot people. White supremacist. And you think, well, wait a minute, his parents don't speak English, they're dark skin, he's from Mexico. And then the next iteration of the lie was they got all of these phony Chicano studies and people from the act, well, you can be a white supremacist and, and Mexican as well. Well, you, then you can be from Mars and a white supremacist. So what? Can you be, I guess you can be a black supremacist and white. But the point was they tried to suggest that this person was white or really white or he was and it would just collapsed and then yes. we go back to the same the same theme with george zimmerman so he is half peruvian his mother is mesa he gets in a one-on-one fight with trayvon martin we still don't know what trayvon martin was doing we know george Zimmerman was sort of a self-appointed neighborhood watch guy that took it very zealously. They get in a fight. Trayvon gets on top of him, smashes his head. Zimmerman thinks he's going to be killed. He may well have been killed. He pulls out a gun and shoots Trayvon, and they're off to the races. So what will they not do? What will they not do? Will they not Photoshop? The injuries on George Zimmerman's head and the police. Yes, they will as a Photoshop it. So you don't think he was really injured. He just did it spontaneously when he pulled out his gun. Well, they doctor the 9-11. So it sounds like he's a racist looking for black. But yes, they'll do that, too. Will they change the ethnic background of George Zimmerman so he looks like a Nazi? George Zimmerman. (laughs) He is a white Hispanic white hispanic no all he had to do was just go i don't i don't know why he didn't just say you know what everybody goes to the races with non-white epithets if you can get away with it whether you're ward churchill or elizabeth 
Warren or what. So my name is Jorge, not George. And it's Mesa, not Zimmerman. I'm using my maternal name. If he had been Jorge, Jorge Mesa, it wouldn't have been a story. They couldn't have gotten away with it. White, Hispanic, Germanic name. So you can see what they do. They just they look at they get up every morning and they span the entire cycle of the news and they say, what story can we reduce down to evil white oppressors and noble people of color oppressed? And if the facts don't fit that, they print the legend. And that's what they do. Yeah. Once they called him a uh white, Hispanic, one had to think, well, can they go any further than that? And then we found out that Larry Elder, I think they called him the face of white, white supremacy. The or face something. of white <laughs> supremacy. Or what if Jay, Jay Behar, who wore blackface, is now adjudicating that Clarence Thomas isn't officially black or that oh, Joe Biden God. is telling a black journalist who that you ain't black if you don't vote for me. And so this is a this is a tendency of very wealthy white bicoastal elites in the media and government that tell black people your degree of blackness hinges on to the degree to which you support me or my agenda. If you don't, then you're not really black. I'm sorry. Yeah, and that's everybody's crazy. Yeah, everybody's sick of it. They're, they really are. And uh, so you always construct these identities. And I guess why doesn't the right say, well, Bar Bar Barack Obama was a white black? Because he was half like like George Zimmerman, he was only half of a person, half person of color, right? I know yes. that he said Trayvon may have looked like the son I never had when he weighed in on that case quite inappropriately. But I don't think that would be true because Trayvon would have been half black according to their own racial fixations. Yeah. Uh, his Trayvon would be half black. He wouldn't have looked like Trayvon, according to Obama. Uh, but you could easily say that Obama, Barry Sortero, what if you just said this guy named Barry Sortero, Barry Sortero is running for president. And, you know, he went to prep school in Hawaii and his grandmother's a bank president and his mom's an academic or and he was Barry Sotero. And then all of a sudden he went to Occidental and he became Barack Obama. And all of a sudden he was black and he dropped his, according to his own admissions, he dropped his white girlfriend and he said he hunted out black studies affiliated people on campuses. So he reinvented himself with an ethnic name and an ethnic yeah. profile. George, think, George Zimmerman didn't. If George Zimmerman had of, he would have gotten off much more easily. He got off because he was innocent of murder as charged, but he would have not had to go through that ordeal if he had been if he had done an Obama and, and really emphasized his ethnic victimized profile. Yeah. And I think that 23andMe and other places that test DNA are just blowing it apart because people are finding out. Like I was thinking yesterday after we talked about Disney's biracial uh, I think it was gay um, character, but I thought biracial, so many people have so many different races in them that biracial is just stupid. How about triracial, quadracial, right? Even my hairdresser has 5% African-American in her. And she was wondering the other day if she was going to be able to partake of these reparations well, they they've in asked California. The yeah, they've asked that. <laughs> they can't answer that question. No, they can't. They can't. And because to do it, we have an example. We have examples 
that would be useful to them in their racial obsession. We do. Some of them come from the antebellum South, where genealogists ascertain through tracing your ancestry whether you had the one drop, which was defined as one sixteenth. And by the way, when Halle Berry got in a paternity uh, with a child custody suit with her white husband, she evoked the one drop rule and said, this child of ours that is half black has more than one drop. And I believe, I'm quoting directly, I believe in the one drop rule, she said. So this is a black person that belongs with me, a black person. But we have that example. We have the example of the yellow star where the Nazis uh, went, I mean, they had a big problem because Orthodox Jews that were identifiable in Eastern Europe, when they went in to liquidate them, according to their own testimonies, that was an easy proposition to find the culprits, so to speak. But Western European Jews were fully assimilated in most cases and intermarried in some cases. And so they had to get genealogists and they had a special bureaus in the Nazi party where if you were well connected and a person would come to you who say was a prominent Jewish scientist or something said, my wife is one quarter, here's the ancestry. And then they would get an exemption as a good, good partial Jew and they wouldn't be sent to the in the Shoah. And so we have the and we have South Africa. They had a very intricate genealogical table where uh, where you were colored or of mixed race and then you were white, depending on the degrees of level. Now, of course, we have DNA. Uh, there were black fraternities in the 40s and 50s and 60s that were racialist so that they used the paper bag rule that if you wanted to go to a sorority party, you had to put your arm out and they would put a paper bag to see if you were darker than the paper bag to get in. And so once you go down that you're going to identify by your superficial appearance of that tribal sea days, then you're going to draw on all of these methods, time tested racialist methods. And that's what the wet left doesn't quite get. So you say that I'm a Native American and I want to get in on the casino lucre. Well, what do you do? You say, I'm 116th, and that worked in the South. It worked in South Africa. You were excluded in National Socialist Germany, or you can now with DNA. And this is a problem that you talked off the record to college admissions officers. They have a big problem because when people are applying to schools and they now were into repertory admission percentages, not just proportional representation, but as I said earlier, Stanford letting in 22% whites when whites make up 67 to 70% of the population. Well, if you know that, then you're going to say you're what? Not white. And a lot of people are doing it. And who knows? What does white mean? Are you, if you're Brazilian, are you Latino or white? If you're from Spain, are you white or you're Hispanic? If you're, I don't know, if you're a Coptic, Arab from Egypt? Or are you a African? So they have a problem, and especially with DNA, when people can say, well, if, if you reject me, my DNA shows I have 5%. And you say, hmm, yeah. let, me go, let me go look at those Confederate manuals, what they did, because they had it down. So I'll go back and consult the Old South, or maybe I'll call up a guy in South Africa and say, hey, were you alive during apartheid? How do we determine racial purity? And that's what, or you can be hoisted on your own petard and say, you know what, 
we created the example that you could declare your or construct your gender, right? Your sex. So if you're a male and you say, now I'm a female and you have testicles and a phallus and a muscular skeletal male body, but you can compete in female sports nonetheless, or you can get special bikini bottoms with cod pieces on. Well, then why can't you just construct your race? If you can do your gender, that's much more dramatic. You don't have to do it with race. You could just do what Rachel Dozel did, right? Some yeah. superficial cosmetic adjustments. So why don't everybody just say that? You know what? I think, well, we, I don't, what am I saying, Sammy? Didn't we have that guy who said that he was a black woman? That white <laughs> Yes. <guy>? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. So, so it's going to get to the point where this college admissions and affirmative action is is just a joke. Yeah, just, it sure is. They well, you a can of worms. You mentioned um, googling things, and uh, recently, a um, I guess he's a professor. He has a Harvard PhD. So he, it's Dr. Robert Epstein, has been studying for the last few uh, many years. I think probably almost a decade. Um, how the Google searches work and. I found the most interesting thing. Of course, they're biased. We all know that. But he, he said that the, or he didn't say this is my paraphrase. He says the scary thing is is that young adults get for the next up video. Um, it's always ninety six percent of the time a liberal point of view. So you know, Google searches, as you've been saying, but this guy has actually studied it. And um, he thinks that it swayed the last election by 6 million votes, right? I was wondering, you know, if he had any reflections well, on two, it. two things. He's right. But he's right in a very unusual way, because most people are right post facto. He was prescient. If you remember, he came on uh, media. And he said before the 2020 election that Donald Trump would probably lose because he had calibrated just what you're talking about, that the bias in these Google searches was an insidious form of campaign donations. And unlike dollars, it was much more valuable. So he was saying to America that every single minute, 330 million people in terms of advertising, things that pop up on their screen, the order of Google searches uh was tilting the election toward the left and he was right they won mm -hmm. you know I, I i think everybody understands that when you search for something you get the results you don't want let me just do an experiment and i haven't done this i just thought of this so i'm on my phone right now sammy and i'm going to write 2020 right remember 120 days of, of riot rioting yeah and they torched the portland police precinct they burned in the a, federal federal fed, courthouse in, in minneapolis in seattle yep. Port, portland i think las vegas yep. and they wanted to they stormed the white house grounds remember and they put trump in a bunker okay so that was an insurrection so let me just say 2020 insurrection right 2020 yes. now let's <laughs> see what comes up ah wikipedia First entry for 2020 insurrection. This is not 2021, January 6th, is it? 
No. But the first thing for 2000, January 6th, United Capital Tax. Second thing, Capital Insurrection, NPR. Third thing, CNN, January 6th, Insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Fourth thing, Washington Post, the January 6th, 2021, Insurrection. FBI website, U.S. Capitol Violence, PBS, How the Capitol Attack Unfolded. Yes. I mean, okay. Okay, now let me me modify it a little bit. Let me just say 2020 insurrection, 120 days riots. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'm doing it. Because I've been Googling things and I noticed that it's all left wing (laughs) news agencies that come up for the first few pages. Uh, Yes, but But, I just, but look at this. I just did 2020 insurrection and 120 days of riots. Number one, January 6th, United Capital Attack. Timeline of January 6th. Associated Press records rebuke claims of unequal treatment of January 6th rioters. AP News. Well, we're going to have to test out other search engines like DuckDuckGo and see if they're as bad, but... No, but I mean, I mean, how do you do it? You can't get the results that are there. So there's yes. some, and what is the reason? There's some little nerd with pink hair and spaghetti arms and a ring in his nose, and he's in a cubicle <laughs> in Silicon Valley, and he hates the world. It's been unfair to him, and he's from a very affluent bicoastal family. And, and he's, he's never been out in the world. He's never in the world. <laughs> and if he pulled into a service station in Modesto, he would be ridiculed and he's there and he's mad and he's tinkering and he's gone from video games at five to coding at six in his parents den and now he's think oh my god i can be important i can do i can be a soldier in the army of woke and he's fixed these algorithms to warp reality and this is this is in the area this is the era before artificial intelligence so we can see what's in store for us everybody says artificial intelligence is going to kill us well it's going to kill us not because of the technology but because because of the people programming it yes exactly and it seems like those google searches are getting worse and worse and worse in that sense that they're really super biased all they show you are left-wing news agencies well i can tell you that there's a hatred if i i've mentioned that once if i'm at the reagan airport and a guy walks by in an all black and a hoodie some antifa looking white guy and he comes up to me and he starts screaming at me and then he knocks my the hat off my head and then when i turn around to confront him he runs down the escalator and says fa, ha, ha, fa. you should see his eyes they were full of hate or when i see somebody i used to know really well and i see them and they turn away and they don't even look at you or if i see a member of my family in some cases it's just pure anger rage hatred and when you let that type of hatred dominate you and you give them a tool like artificial intelligence or an algorithm on Google, boy, it's going to be scary. I wouldn't worry about artificial intelligence to a great degree if Silicon Valley was 50-50. But when I read that 94% of all political donations from Silicon Valley entities went to the left, then it's really frightening. 
Yeah. You know, since you brought it up, I had on our list to talk a little bit about Elon Musk. And he had an interview where he said, artificial intelligence is going to be really good in a lot of senses. But he said, at the end of that, there is a small chance AI will go wrong and destroy humanity. I was wondering what you thought about. I don't know what to think about that, because we never know whether he's serious or kidding Mm. about everything. I mean, I... A spaceship of his blows up, you know, it's things happen. Or he he just matter of factly says, I'm not that bright. I paid twenty billion dollars more too much or forty billion too much for Twitter. It wasn't worth it. <laughs> and then he just moves on, right? Yeah. Or absolutely. He, he nothing seems to be to get him. And yeah. He seems to be the epitome of mercurial. I love that word, but boy, he's uh, just all over the place in some ways. I don't know. Yeah, he's. The th- I, I say that again, but for me, there's a dividing line between people who just talk and people who've actually physically done something. So whatever you think about him, and I think a lot about him positively, but he built SpaceX. He created before Tesla. The idea was quaint. You remember the Chevy Volt and all these efforts to somehow get electricity into the equation? He he did it. He did it. You can say, well, it's not whatever you want to say. There's Teslas everywhere. Mm-hmm. He did it. And whatever you want to say about social media and he was an idiot and Twitter's passe. It wasn't just Twitter that he did. He shook up the entire social media world and he gave an outlet for people who had been excluded and he enraged the left. And he got a platform. Yeah. And so before he bought Twitter, people knew of him, but they didn't know 24-7 about it. Now they see him everywhere. Yes. So he, you got to, the guy is, he's very, he's erratic, but he's brilliant. He's a genius. Mm-hmm. And he yeah, does, he's- he does stuff. He seems to shoot from the hip and and it really works. Like even with Ron DeSantis, it seems like he decided he kind of liked Ron DeSantis and now he's, you know, created a <laughs> platform for him and others too as well, not just to interview Ron well, DeSantis. Well, somebody, once somebody wrote me an email uh day before yesterday, said, oh, Professor Hansen, you have it all wrong. Yes, they had, they have a million uh I don't know. I was on a radio show and I said this. It wasn't on our podcast, but you know, I bought the the million person window they needed. And they only got a hundred thousand, and I said that was a bad rollout. He goes, "No, it wasn't a bad rollout. They planned it." <laughs> I, said, I, thought, I said, "No, they didn't. They planned it because you're talking about it now." And it, I said, "I thought, yeah, but it reflects poorly." No, it ref-, you know, he was, you know, yeah. And the idea was that it gave him a lot. A publicity, maybe negative publicity, but it was publicity nonetheless. I yes. went back, by the way, and looked at what he said, DeSantis. So if you Google DeSantis speech, you'll see bad rollout, flawed rollout, da 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 da, poor delivery, lack of charisma. But if you actually read the speech, what he said, it was a detailed, in depth, analytical critique of the whole leftist project and how you dismantle it. It was really good, but you know, the left, the left, uh, I don't know who they hate more now. They hate Donald Trump more, but 
they, they know they have to go after DeSantis. Yes, and really, they, they fear yeah. him. They fear him more than they do Trump. They hate Trump and they fear DeSantis. Yeah, and that's they, for sure. And I think it 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 channels into DeSantis's subtext that he gets even rather than mad, I guess. But the other thing is, I also looked the other day at this Latita James, you know, lawsuit about overvaluing assets. <laughs> I mean, that thing is the weakest, most pathetic, supposed indictment. And I was thinking about the other day because I was reading about Black Lives Matter and how the former um, directors have all absconded with the money and it's almost uh, literally broke. There is no more corporate. They can't shake down the corporation unless they have another riot, right? Yes. Uh, They're going to have to riot this summer and burn up a bunch of stuff and then threaten corporations because they won't give them any more money because they know where it goes. They, they they did three things. They spent lavish spending. They bought mansions for the three of the women. And uh, they hired their brothers and friends on phony security or sounds, all you name it. So they took, it was just complete fraud. And it was, it, it was interstate fraud because it was a foundation and all this stuff. So think of that that it's completely exempt from federal scrutiny. And you're going after Donald Trump for supposedly saying that his assets were more valuable than they were in order to get financing, which he didn't ever defaulted on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It just, yeah. It's like you wake up one day and it's, you're an insect in a Kafka off and you think, I don't belong in this world. I'm an insect. It doesn't, there's no coordinates that are familiar to me. And that's that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and take our last break, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about agriculture. Stay with us, and we'll be back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back, Victor. So we on Saturday, we usually do, and I know we didn't do our military segment this week. We are going to take a week off on that, but um, you often talk about agriculture f- to us. And so I'd like to just go ahead and open it up for that. Well, you know, if you're on a family farm and you live where you work, I mentioned that earlier, that you have to be very careful that, uh, to be a steward. So if you want to go per- paraquat to burn off weeds, you're going to have to say to yourself, do I really want to put black death, that's what I used to call it, into the tank out in the barnyard where the kids are walking around? Or if you're going to spray diazinon in the winter with oil, do I want to do it on a day that'll blow into the house? 
Or if I want to use Nemagong in the old days, do I want to do it and have it filter down into the house well? So you become a steward because you're living there and your family is living there. And I say that as somebody whose mother died at 67 of cancer after living in the house that I'm living, whose sister died at 49, grew up in the same farm that I'm living from breast cancer, whose third sister died at 59 from kidney cancer. She had polio, but she had 50. And uh, whose sister-in-law died at 50 uh, from leukemia and whose daughter, my daughter died at 26 of leukemia. So I have, I'm very suspicious whether this environment or because we're talking about some people that weren't in our family had something to do with it. And I know that sounds conspiratorial, but, and we were very careful. I mean, I wasn't careful with my person, but as far as storing chemicals and not using, using the, the bare minimum, we were. So that's one thing, Stuart. The other thing is that you, that your kids and they get integrated into a very early age into economic reality. And so when you're there, you're always talking about how many boxes per acre you need of plums so that your child can get a bat in Little League. Or you say to them, look, I've got to irrigate all day. I've got to be on the tractor all day. I don't have time to take 3,000 pounds in the old telephone van that we bought when Bell Telephone broke up for 1,500 bucks with 200,000 miles. But I trust you at 16 and you at 15 and you at 15 to load 3,000 pounds and drive over Pacheco Pass and pedal it. And that makes a kid grow up very early, very early. And then uh, they they have this idea of hard work. Um, I had my daughter who passed away. I remember when she was six, they picked organic tomatoes. We had a whole acre of organic tomatoes and they were they had to be just really ripe, right? And she was so happy to get her white shorts and her white t-shirt and her white tennis shoes to go out and be a worker on the family farm every morning. And she came in every day at 11 when I was writing and she was covered from head to toe with tomatoes. <laughs> she had tomato juice. She had squashed tomatoes. She was, I, the first time I saw her, I thought, Oh my God, she's been injured. She's bleeding. But the point <laughs> is she did it. And then one time she came in, she goes, I'm, I, I think I've got a rash, Dad. I looked out and had those, you know, those huge, you remember those green tomato caterpillars? Mm. <laughs> it was on the back of her neck coming up into her ear and, mm. I, and bitter. And, and so, I mean, they're in, they're involved in the real world and they're working with people. So, you know, they would say to me uh, when they, you know, I talk about where they're going to go to college. And then at the same breath, they would say, Hernando uh, needs a ride home. He was a guy that we knew has worked here for, can I drive him home? So I let my 16-year-old daughter drive a 70-year-old farm worker all the way, you know, 40 miles. But the point is, there were no class distinctions. And they looked at people for their innate worth, not what their name was or their title was or anything. And so they judge people on action. And I think that was very important that they would say things to me. Wow, did you see Scorch? He was a guy at workforce. He drove that that tandem disc, Dad. He goes right down the middle and he 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 gets with the one one inch on each side of the vine. He doesn't hit the stake. He gets every single weed. It's straight. How does he do that? 
And so they, it wasn't, you know, that, well, dad, that guy has a PhD that visited. They didn't care. They didn't care at all. It was all based on what your muscularity and your brains could do. And that was, and hard work was very important. Everybody was up at six and they worked together. And I had a twin brother, I do, and he was kind of the ramrod. And at one point he had my three, my first cousin who grew up with us, his three and his four was 10 kids. It was like a little army <laughs> and they called him El Jefe and he would be out in the packing house and then all the kids would line up like they were little soldiers, you know, saluting him. <laughs> and then they would say, what do we do? And he'd say, well, here it is, mister. Now you three go over there in the tomatoes and I want them picked this way. Now you four come over with me with the apple pears and you other people start loading the van. And he had it like a, you know what I mean? Like an army. And uh, they all grew up that way. And then when everything collapsed in the, you know, in 2005 and a lot of my siblings left and sold off and everything, uh, that camaraderie was lost. And yet today I'll meet one of them. My son said that he's a high school teacher. He's, he has a great job. He has a beautiful house, nice wife, kids. Everything's going great. But he'll say, don't sell. I think I'd like to do farmer's market. And I think, oh, my God, do not quit your job and get try to farm, please, please. But what he's saying is that he's not thinking economically, but of what that was like, it, it really imprinted them from a very early age. And I think that's really important. So especially the life cycle of, of you know, when they would they would know about blossoms on the orchard and then what stage the plum was in, when it would be thinning, what type of crop it would be. And they would root for the family to have something. It was it was sort of what America was based on, that family-oriented land uh, cohesiveness. And when we say today our youth are sitting in the basement watching video games or we're all in one single family, single parent, or people have no idea what they're doing, it's I think a lot of it is that breakdown of the family basis for this democratic system, this re constitutional republic of, of farmers. The other thing is there's two types of free ranging. One free ranging is within the cohesive unity of the family. You give the child responsibility during the day. You're not a helicopter parent. It's, not, it's very different than growing up in the inner city with one parent that can't handle the kids and the kid just lives on the street and inculcates street knowledge from criminals. But what I mean is you tell the ch child, here's what you're going to be working today. I'm going to be working over here. You do that. Use your initiative. Check in at noon. We'll have lunch together with the family and then check in. You'll have an hour off. Then we're going to work at night. And you'd be surprised the initiative that a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old, and you have no idea what they're doing. And so I'll be, I would drive around in my truck and all of a sudden I'd see five kids and they all had shovels and they were digging weeds around a young orchard. I said, who told you? Well, we just thought we saw the weeds, so we did it. And that kind of, that's very good to have that initiative and just let them be adults very early, but within careful parameters. But, and I think that's lost. It's very hard to do that in the city in a high rise or when we have these life choices that that we call judgmental to object that one life choice is better than the other. So we've got to the, 
we've descended at a nadir now that if you have a two-parent family and you're cohesive and you're working together as a family, that that's somehow chauvinistic. And how dare you say that that model is more stable than a single parent family or a divorced parent family or a gay, two gay parents, or something like that. And so we've kind of denigrated that traditional family that was the bulwark that that created the stability in the United States. And you can really see that a a lot of ethnic people that come over have still retained that, at least for a generation or two. And that's why legal immigration is actually a very good thing for the United States. So it sort of reminds us, hey, you guys, we're coming over and we own a family restaurant or we have a family gas station. Just as an example, I won't try to give it away, but I had a a a a lawn tractor tire that was flat yesterday, two days ago. So I took it. I didn't want to go to the the chain, you know, chain tire. So I went to this little tiny tire store in the local town. It used to be run by a white farmer as a sidelight. And I knew it. I got along. They were very nice people, but they sold out to a guy just from Mexico. I don't know if he's legal or not, but he, he bought it. And from time to time, I go in there and I just thought, I'm going to go in there and give them business. And they're going to be, and boy, I went in there and he had a, he had a, his own little family uniform with his name on it. And he has two sons with their names on it. And it was immaculate. And I gave them the flat tire I took off. And they said within five minutes, this is the type of thing we're going to need. And it'll take us just 24 hours and you can pick it up. And then I woke up in the morning and I was doing a podcast like this. And then I looked at my phone and exactly at the right time. And they said it was ready. I went in there and bam. But it was a family kind of business. And you can see that that immigrant stimulus is very good for the country. Yeah, I, sure I think is. it is. I think it is. So that's what farming does. I think it creates family unity and responsibility and initiative and self-reliance. Yeah. Well, just speaking from a an outside point of view, I, I grew up in working vineyards in, for my parents, pruning and weeding, et cetera. And then by the time I got a job in town, I thought, man, this is so easy and I'm I know that. so much money. <laughs> I know. It's very funny. I worked, I'll just finish our podcast with this statement. I worked, I got a PhD right when I turned 26. I finished when I was 25, but I had a fellowship, so I didn't want to lose it. So I came home 25 and a half and I started farming. I thought it was going to be for summer, but it ended up for five years, right? So I did this and I made, I went back, I think I, I looked at my, you get your social security income, you know, when you look every once in a while, they give you a history of it. And from 1980 to 84, I made at 6,500 to $7,000. Okay. And then I went up to Fresno and I got $800 a month as a part-time teacher. And then I got my first contract a year and a half later, $22,000 to teach five classes. And I went up there and I, I had never done this before. I had health benefits. I had a steady income. I thought, wow, it's like 1700 bucks a month. And it doesn't depend on whether, you know, the plums are tailed on or the rains on the raisins. I don't have to get up at five. I don't have to be there till eight. And then guess what? I'm not having to work 10 hours a day. 
I'm only in class six hours. It was, and everybody was telling me, oh, you poor guy, you're a lecturer, you have to part-time, you have to teach five classes. And then the next year, I was an assistant professor. And I only had four classes. And they all, and I went to the lounge with my colleagues and they said, Wow, this is so unfair. I have four classes in the CSU system. We demands we teach four classes. I said, Yeah, but you get your summers off. I come home and I have I drive the tractor in the summer and I ride at night, but I'm still getting paid by the university. Oh, yes, don't think that, Victor. They're just you only get paid for nine months, but they pay your thing. I said, it doesn't matter. You're getting a check in the summer. You're doing nothing. <laughs> and I and then as I got on, it was just incredible. The workload, you know what I mean? It was yes. like it was, you know, it was three to four hours a day. Period. I mean, every three days. It was four three hour classes a week. So I would teach eight, ten, twelve, two. I prepare on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I did it Monday, Wednesday, Friday teaching. But preparing, I could prepare it in three hours. And then I'd spend three hours correcting papers and three hours at night. But I had the rest of the summer. All the, I finally said to my colleagues, I'm working 180 days a year. I'm getting paid for 360. Teacher, don't ever say that. Teachers are exploited. <laughs> we don't, we don't, we may not want it, but our days are so much. I said, they're not any comparison to farming. I'm sorry. You get on 105 degrees on a Ford 5000 tractor with a spray rig and you go out and do what these guys are doing every day. And then when you don't know you're going to make any money or you go, you go down and try to prune, you know, prune a peach tree and then it takes you an hour to do a tree. And then you do, you know, 12 a day and you look out and you've got a hundred more of them to do. I'm sorry. Or you you look at you try to take apart a tandem disc and you drop that disc on your foot and see what happens. And I could go on, but this yeah. psychodrama, melodrama that I and I'm a teacher. My father was a teacher, a farmer, my aunt was a teacher, my first cousin, Dash, who grew up with us, was a teacher, my son is a teacher, my son-in-law is a teacher, but I'm sorry, teaching. And I, I was a teacher. I am a teacher. I teach at Hillsdale. Teaching is not the same as farming. I'm sorry. Farming yeah. on a scale of one to ten of physical drudgery and danger and risk and financial is a 10 and teaching is a one. <laughs> and, yet, and I hear that Randy Weingarten and the teacher's union whine about this and that. Anyway, anyway we, we have to stop. You're yeah, your dogs have announced the end. Once yes. Again. I don't know if you're listening. And I've got a, I've got a, I have a doctor's appointment in nine minutes. I've got to go. All right. All right. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hampton, and we're signing off. Thank you, everybody. 